And we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the autism sage yourself, Mama Babin. How are you? I'm good today. Once again, the sun is shining, so that makes me happy. Um, but I'm also really super excited because we have Kelly here with us today. And Kelly, why don't you introduce yourself so that you give the correct information as far as um, your role and, and what you do. That's so wonderful for the community. Okay. Well, thank you, Stacy and Torin, for inviting me on your podcast. I'm super excited to be here. I'm Kelly Mahler. Um, I'm an occupational therapist by trade. I've been an OT for 20 years and super love being an OT. Um, and a large majority of what I do in my role is supporting autistic people, both children and adults. Um, and I also happen to be an interoception groupie. Um, it's a brand new topic that I'm completely obsessed about. And I would imagine that we might be talking a little bit about the topic today. Well, I am glad that you are obsessed with interoception. Um, and there's always the, you know, some people say it's interoceptive and I'm like, okay, can we not argue about the pronunciation? Can we just get the word out there about the concept? Right. Um, and I, I will say for me, um, I guess personally and professionally, I, when I, when I learned about this system, it was like, oh my gosh, I knew there was something right. Because I kept saying, there's no reason why my students should be struggling so much with potty training, right? Or not wanting to eat or whatever was going on. Um, you know, the temperature, you know, wearing a jacket when it's, and because it didn't make sense to me that it was because of like just a developmental delay, right? It just didn't make the connections, but I didn't know why. And I was like, well, autism is not a developmental delay. It's not an intellectual delay. So why are my students struggling? Um, so I want to say thank you for um, just being obsessed with this so that now we all know why, right? Why our kiddos are struggling. And just out of curiosity, is there a story around how you became intrigued so that you dug a little bit deeper so we could all learn? Yeah, like I really need to make up a really fascinating story. It's really not that entertaining. <laughs> I was uh, helping a friend edit a book and we were writing a second edition of her of her book all about sensory processing and autism. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, I had heard the word interoception um, and I proposed adding it to this book, but I didn't really know um, exactly what interoception was all about until I started doing the research for that book. I thought it was a toileting thing. And I was in for a big surprise about how wrong I was, you know, interoception is so vastly influential in all of our lives and it affects so much of what we do every day. Um, and so really through reading um, a lot of the research, I was just having this like aha moment after aha moment. And I was like talking to my clients and asking them tons of questions. I, my, my husband says, I'm an interviewer. I'm constantly asking questions and I was asking their families questions. And we really came to discover that interoception was a really big deal for a lot of my clients. And really it was one of those things that was getting in the way of them being able to reach their goals in a, mm -hmm. in a full way. Um, you know, they, 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 uh, we were working on mental health and emotion regulation and there was just something missing and it turns out it's this thing called interoception. 
Exactly. And Torin, I'm going to pick your brain. Um, I'm curious to know, as an autistic individual who was diagnosed as a child, when is the first time you heard the word interoceptive? Or well, I'm going to answer that. But first, I want to bounce this back to Kelly and ask mm -hmm. the question, what is interoception? I think for the audience, that's a big word. And a lot of people don't quite understand what it is. And you can, and I always worry about turning people off when I use big words, mm -hmm. because for example, I didn't know what interoception was. Well, actually answer your question real quick. About six months to a year ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think when I started following your page, um, because interoception's in the name of your page. So I asked Stacy, what is interoception? Or I might've Googled it. I think I might've Googled it because I didn't want to admit I didn't know what it was. So I Googled it. And I'm like, oh, okay, so that's what it is. So can you explain to the audience what is introception and why is it important and relevant to autistic people? Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start. And like, my goodness, first, like, let's just say introception is not a very sexy word. Like, I'm like <laughs> someone please come up with a better word for that. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, introception is really the newest um, sensory system or sense to be defined by neuroscientists. And um, we all um, have this sense within our bodies and interoception's biggest job is to help us to feel internal sensations. So things like when our heart races, being able to feel that, or maybe our stomach is like, has that grumbly or growly feeling, or our muscles are tense or our skin is really hot. And so to, um, interoception helps us to feel those inner sensations and those um, sensations are really important because they provide us clues with how our body is feeling and what our body needs for regulation, for comfort, for safety. Um, and we know that um, for autistic people, as well as other people, like the, just the general population, but I know we're talking specifically about autism for a lot of autistic people. Um, they, they do experience what we call interoceptive extremes. Um, so they might experience a really intense interoceptive experience where they notice a lot of different sensations all at once. It's really overwhelming. It's really hard to figure out what's important. What, what is the important clue to pay attention to? What does this all mean? Um, or they might have like one sensation that's very overwhelming. Like I think, for example, like a panic disorder, like when you're experiencing a panic attack, many people explain that as a very intense internal experience, whether it's the racing heart or the breathlessness and they're, and they just get so stuck on that, that sensation. Um, then on the other end of that extreme, that for some autistic people, they can experience a muted inner experience. So they might just completely miss, um, those inner sensations or some of them, like they might not, um, notice those feelings of hunger or sleepiness, um, or they might only notice those sensations when they get really big. So they don't notice they're getting hungry until they're hangry, which is what my uh, teenage clients call it when they're like, it's an emergency feeling like I need to eat right now in this moment or else, um, or they don't notice they're getting overwhelmed until they're in a full meltdown or shutdown. Um, and it's a lot more complicated than that. That's a very generalized description of what some autistic people experience. Um, so I'll turn it back over to you. <laughs> To you. Well, I, I would like to, you know, I work with parents and Torn and I, you know, we target trying to help parents understand um, their kiddos and, and what they can do at home and what they can advocate for. Um, and, and, you know, one of the other things that uh, 
or should I say one of the other reasons that Torin and I think it's important for parents to understand is because a lot of parents don't have access to therapists that understand this, right? So if we can get parents to understand, then maybe they can even say, hey, to their child's therapist, have you heard about this, right? And so we're trying to shift the narrative around um, everything autism, but certainly I think this information is something that a lot of our listeners need to hear. And in regards to that, when it comes to parents, because it's really hard um, for parents to conceptualize that their three-year-old doesn't know that they're hungry or thirsty, right? Um, they get really frustrated as a parent because, you know, you as a parent, you know, we have lots of things to do and you can't always think, oh, did they drink water today, right? I need to get water. And so sometimes it's having to remember or relying on their child to ask them for water because they're also trying to build communication. How would you help parents sort of make the connection, because this is something that comes up very often with my parents of young children. They're very concerned about the fact that their child does not ask to eat or drink anything. And so they're worried about what's going to happen as they grow older. Um, so what would you say to help our listeners who are maybe in that position and trying to understand, um, and maybe if there's anything they can do, but at least to understand what's really going on, right? Because it's hard to conceptualize you don't know you're hungry and thirsty. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's hard to conceptualize anyone else's inner experience because we're all so different. Yes. And the, the science of interoception is providing us with evidence that there is scientifically something going on with your child's uh, neurology that is um, it's not a choice that they're just not, you know, seeking out food or it's, it's mm -hmm. not a choice that they're not toilet trained at age five or whatever it is, you know, that there is something going on. But I think also, um, the research is very clear that interoception is something that can be enhanced and it can, uh, and we can nurture that, um, each person's interceptive understanding so they can become, um, more aware and they become better able to understand themselves. Um, it does take time for some people, but there's lots of hope. Um, we've seen so many gains, um, in the work that we're doing and, um, just the well-being of our clients or just, and their families is really improving. So I think that, that those are two, it's important to know about your child's interceptive experience and also have that hope that it is definitely something that can is changeable and can grow. And then, you know, I always try to, to help parents understand that, you know, you can get some movement, right. And some growth, but if you don't get to that total where they're always feeling they're hungry, I have autistic friends. They just have reminders on their phone, right. They just have routines in place where we get into a routine of eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so there are ways that we can support ourselves as adults, even if we don't get to maybe where we'd like to be <laughs> with recognizing that. Because I do think that sometimes parents feel like if their children don't get to that optimal point, that that means it's all over, right? Um, and so just to help our listeners know that there is hope. We always work towards our kids um, growing in that area of their interoceptive, but know that um, we also have supports that we can put in place. So the big question I have, I say big question because all of us, the three of us, along with other folks, understand that the biggest blockade for a lot of our autistic kiddos, um, young adults, teens, is the school setting, right? 
um, not getting what they need sensory-wise in the school setting and having the therapist that can educate the school. I know that you do a lot of work in your area. I've seen you present, um, and I know sometimes it's a a battle that's not always won. Um, you know, Torrens worked in the schools with kids. I've worked in the schools um, and some people don't budge. But what are maybe one or two things that our listeners can ask their child's therapist to maybe get movement towards someone even looking into that um, in terms of the interceptive as to why their child is not potty trained? Because schools put a lot of pressure on our parents. Mm-hmm. Like, they need to be potty trained or they can't walk through the door and parents are overwhelmed and stressed. The children will not be able to go to school. Um, so parents don't know what to ask their child's therapist um, in order to lead them even to looking into that. Um, is there anything maybe I know I'm asking for um, easy answers, right? But maybe something to sort of start the conversation. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, maybe just saying something like, do you think interoception could be at play here? Um, you know, like I've just heard about this new sense. What do you know about it? Mm -hmm. Um, and really, um, you know, I've encouraged a lot of, um, the parents that I support. Um, I think sometimes parents think that they have to be stuck with a therapist, like, and, you know, and I know that not everyone has a luxury of finding another therapist, but if you do have, you live in an area with other alternatives, you know, be a savvy consumer. And if that therapist is not aware of interception, and I think the parent like gut that expert on their on, they are the expert on their, their child. If they think that there's something going on interceptively, I would follow that and pursue it the best that you can, and maybe find someone else that might be um, better suited, a better match for, um, um, what your, what your child needs. And I think there's also things that are readily available that are actually destroying the interceptive experience in children. And I think that parents also, um, are in such a really challenging situation right now because they're pediatricians, they're, you know, the medical providers are saying your the best practice is for your child to have 40 hours of ABA a week. And, there's a lot of um, things being done within behaviorism that is really destroying yes. the interceptive experience. Yes. We are conditioning these kids mm-hmm. to ignore what it is their body needs for comfort and regulation in order to please someone else to get mm-hmm. that reinforcer. So mm-hmm. it's seeking out that interception informed provider, but also exploring the other things that you do have access to and really analyzing like it, are those providers validating your child's inner experience? Because if not, I would also be questioning that as well. Yeah. And, and I know it's hard for parents to, um, some parents, it's a struggle for them to sort of stand up to um, a professional. Um, but, you know, fortunately, we have lots of supports that parents are getting a little bit, they're getting the words, right? And like you said, sometimes it's very simple, right? Like, hey, have you heard of? Um, and I will just throw in, you um, Kelly on her website, which we'll have all that information after the podcast, has courses um, that are available for parents and professionals. And so I always encourage my parents, if you have a good relationship with your your child's therapist, say, hey, you know what, let's take this course together. Let's take this training. Let's watch this webinar. I'll pay for it, right? Um, And let's both learn together. I will say that I find occupational therapists are more willing to learn from parent parents than some other therapists. And I'm not doubting therapists, but I do find that culturally um, OTs are more willing to accept um, input 
from parents. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but that's what I'm finding from my parents' perspective. Um, I find that sometimes other therapists are like, oh, well, I know what's best and parents don't um, like I'm, My best guess is, I don't know a nice way of saying this, but the amount of schooling, um, I'm guessing the more schooling and the more money you have to invest your education, the less likely you are to listen to some parent who has no background tell you, let's go, let's, let's go take this course together. Because you're going, because from your perspective, you're like, well, I suffered for eight to 12 years to learn, quote unquote, everything I have to know <laughs> that there is to know about autism. I'm not letting some parent with a degree in like creative writing, just throwing something out there. That was my degree. Tell me that I don't know shit. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's part of, definitely part of the reason. And also OTs, as a speech therapist, I mean, I've had, I've been, Torin has heard this story. I have been so very fortunate to work alongside two of some of the like best speech therapists in terms, I mean, occupational therapists. Um, I even keep in touch with my first one when I was a speech therapist in the schools because when sensory processing and all of that started coming up in the, you know, this is 20 something years ago when I started this journey, um, specifying in an autism community and doing work um, within the community she let me tag along with her because i said this is working like this is working with my kids and she would let me go along to the training she would come and work with me and so because of that you know of course i i kept learning and learning and i had another really great um ot that i still um uh, we collaborate and do some stuff i find that ot's are it's almost like, you know, physical therapy is really hard work. Like it's always not so much fun because it's sometimes painful and uncomfortable. You know, speech therapy is fun, but sometimes we got to do little stuff that's like really hard work. OT is hard work, but it's inevitably fun all the time. <laughs> like, so I think the, the, the nature, right, of OTs of like, oh, let's sort of like work together with the parents. Um, but my, my other, because I could talk over and over and again about OTs, because I think that OTs are great. Um, I used to be called an OT wannabe, and I'm like, no, I don't want to be an OT. I just like working alongside great OTs. I want to stay in speech. What would you say um, in terms of something that, I'm trying to think of something our listeners can gain in terms of something most people don't think about in relation to the interoceptive system, right? Like, like toileting, yeah, a lot of us are sort of picking up on that, right? Um, so what are some things that a lot of, that, just one or two things that people don't even realize are actually connected to that interoceptive system? Well, I could go really off, like really off in La La Land and, um, or I could talk, I know a lot of people are just new to the topic, so I'll stay with some basics, but then I'll give you one that's really far out there. Does that sound good? Perfect. So definitely anything in the emotion regulation realm. So like if your child's emotions appear to go from zero to 100, um, if you're asking them how they're feeling and they're continually saying, I don't know, or maybe they answer with the same answer every time they seem to be really disconnected from exactly how they're feeling. Definitely. I would be curious about their, their interceptive experience, pain, um, whether they feel pain in a really big way or in a really small way, like you're like, you know, you're questioning, like I saw, you know, them fall and they have a gaping wound and they're, they don't appear to be in pain. I would just be curious about their interceptive experience. And like, we already said the hunger, the thirst, the fullness, not noticing when they're full. And we have, I have a lot of 
um, overeaters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, which is for a lot of different reasons, but it's all interceptive. Like they might be not noticing that they're feeling full. They might be confusing the feeling of hunger. They might be, um, getting that oral input for, um, regulation. So they're misinterpreting that sensation. So there's a lot of different things that could be happening, but I think also, and I know I'm going a little bit off script, but I think that to some of my, my clients are acting in ways that are very much in line with their inner experience and we're accidentally gaslighting them. So like, you know, for example, we're like, that, that can't possibly be hurting your ears. That sound is so quiet. You know, that that's, that's not validating their inner experience, or you can't possibly be hungry again. I just fed you again. That's like that. We, we, we should get more curious there instead of just shutting them down. I'm really trying to understand what it is they're going through. Or I think like a lot of self injurious behavior could be rooted in pain and unidentified, you know, they're, they're feeling something and we're just not good at reading what they're communicating. So it's, it's on us. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, all of those are signs <laughs> of being more curious about your child's inner experience, but then the outlandish one, I promised time perception, this one oh. really threw me for a loop because I thought, you know, being of able to like manage time was mm-hmm. frontal lobe executive functioning thing. Mm-hmm. And actually there's been some really cool research where they've asked people to estimate the passage of a certain duration of time. And they watch what areas of the brain are activated when they're mm-hmm. estimating time passage. And one of the areas is the insula, which is the interception center of the brain. So oh. scientists are concluding that in order to estimate time work, we feel that passage of time within our bodies, which I'm still wrapping my head around, but I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So do you think that would, would have any relation to the struggle to wait for some of our kids? Although I tell parents all the time, uh, three-year-olds just are not of waiting. Like they're three, like, like three-year-olds don't want to wait, give them something to do because <laughs> they're three. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm probably not a good one to answer about a waiting question because I'm really not good at <laughs> waiting either. Um, but I know it can be very significantly dysregulating to some people. Yeah. And I don't know if that's related or not. We definitely have learned only a little bit about interoception and we have a very long way to go and really understanding, um, this sense and how it impacts all of us. It's so interesting. You just said that in terms of, you said, cause I'm not good at waiting and then how we're learning more. It puzzles me that like why I'm, I always wonder, so why do people like what really controls patients? How come some people can wait in the bank line and it doesn't bother them and other people cannot wait in the bank line? Like, what is that about in our system that that makes that feeling of frustration, right? Because some people really can't and typically we partner up with the opposite right like a waiter partners up with a non-waiter and then there's contention in the grocery store line um yeah maybe somebody will figure that out um i I worry about this train of thought only because i don't want to put in people's heads that being impatient is an autistic thing because it's not people in general are impatient i'm a very impatient person now i'm also autistic but i'm impatient in my opinion simply just because my brain works fast I'm always, I want to be moving. I want to be doing stuff. And I just get annoyed, especially mm-hmm. at in, inefficiency. Mm-hmm. If you're standing and someone's like, you ever been, okay, this comes to mind. I'm not sure how many parents have had to experience this, but 
but anyone who grew up like in the projects has to experience this. When you're behind, and maybe Stacey, you have, when you're in the supermarket, you're behind someone has like those WIC, those uh, WIC uh, things, the WICs, mm-hmm. and they have to punch it into the, the, the cash register and they have like the bar, that the wooden plank with the barcode and it doesn't work. And then they gotta go to the manager and I have like one item and you're just standing there. Like, I feel like that's not an autism thing. That's just an annoyance. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yes. can, can you open it? And then when there's like two other registers that aren't being operated, it's like, guys, can you, can, can we move it along? I, I have better things to do in my life than the wait for you to figure out if baby formula is covered because it is covered if your machinery is not working. It's always the machinery it's not working in the end. That's the answer. Like, let's skip to that part. So I don't think the impatient in and of itself is an autistic trait. Oh, no, no, Maybe no, no. interoception impacts that, but that's something, if I'm being honest, I'm a little skeptical of. Oh, yeah, and of I apologize for the siren in the uh, background. Right now, I guess somebody's getting arrested. I think I was implying that it was a part of it. I just often wonder with all of this stuff I'm learning about interceptive, like what else is going on that controls certain things. And Torin, listening to your scenario, I think, and I'm going to move on from this topic, I think I figured out the reason that waiting doesn't bother me because I see it as an opportunity to talk to strangers. Like literally I'm talking to strangers while I'm waiting. So that is very reinforcing to me. So now I figured it out that it's Oh, really see, that's the difference between me and you. Like I hate everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just saying, I'm like, I don't like any of you people. Yeah, I'm so in, I am so in line with you, Tar. Like talking <laughs> to strangers is my worst nightmare. Oh, <laughs> waiting in that line yeah. again, I would be, yeah. I feel so impatient. And yeah. I definitely don't think it's an autism thing at all. It's yeah, definitely funny. probably. What I will say is an autism thing is I suck at time management because that's an executive function thing, which is definitely an autism ADHD thing. So I'm waiting in line. I'm probably already late for something um, because I run yeah. on CPT. Y'all can look up what that means. So I'm always late for things. Mm-hmm. So when I'm waiting in line, I'm just like, oh, God. If you're really late for something, and then you're like, okay, if I just get to the store, I can get in and out. The line's like out the freaking door. You're just like, well, I guess I'm screwed today. Yes, happens a lot. So Kelly, in terms of, because I'm trying to think of our listeners and what they can gain from this, um, just so that they can. I love the way you said if if your child does this, or if you see this, um, to be curious about their interceptive. I love the way you worded that. Um, can you think of, and I know I'm like, I feel like I'm quizzing you, but I'm trying to give our listeners things that they don't. So there's a lot of things that parents see their children do. They don't think about it as something that could be related to anything because it's just what they've always done, right? So for example, sometimes kiddos who will, you know, read very close to a book, right? They've just always done that. Parents just accept that's what they like to do. They're not looking at it as that it could possibly be something visually related, right? Um, until they get to school. So are there any things that are sort of subtle that um, parents, if they see, should make them curious about digging into the interceptive? I know we talked about the hunger and the potty, and those are two primary things that I know a lot of parents focus on. Um, uh, the thirst is the one I know that that parents are really concerned about their kids getting dehydrated because they feel like they have to force their three-year-old to drink water, right? Because they do get dehydrated. Um, but is there anything that our, our parents can sort of, or even therapists that are listening, because therapists that are learning who are, are listening as well? 
Um, well, we didn't really touch on body temperature and really being connected to your body temperature. Um, I know, um, and again, this is being very overly general, but some of my clients, I know they could like go outside. I live in Pennsylvania, very cold winters. They could go outside in the middle of the winter in nothing but like, you know, a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and not appear to be phased by the very cold temperatures outside and they could stay outside there for a lo- very long time. Um, or again, alternatively in the hot summers, they might have their, you know, winter jacket on and they might not be noticing, although they're like starting to like sweat through their underclothes, they're not noticing that they're getting, um, overheated or they only notice when they're like, so overheated, they're melting down from how uncomfortable that, that feels. Um, so that definitely is related to, um, interception at least, um, partially. And, and the jacket scenario is another one of those common, I'm sure you hear it a lot, um, in terms of, you know, the schools are concerned because they're wearing their jacket outside and they don't want them to get overheated. The parents are concerned because they're not putting a coat on and it's snowing outside. Is there any, um, I know every scenario is different. Um, because the dilemma is incorporating the strategy of the parents have to be the one, because, you know, in general, we don't let our kids eat a whole bag of Oreos, right? We monitor and and our job as parents is to set boundaries. Um, but when we're talking about the sensory system, we want to set boundaries to balance and validate what's going on. However, we also don't want our kids to get frostbite, right? And outside barefoot (laughs) in the snow. So are there any, um, uh, without, you know, for lack of better terms, simple, because I know it's not that simple, that parents can do to help with that scenario of refusing to put a jacket and shoes on to go out in the snow or not wanting to take it off when they are literally drenched in sweat and, and the school is concerned about overheating, yeah. which is valid. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's a lot of safety issues you're talking about there. Frostbite is a very serious condition. Um, I just would do some um, good detective work and like really figuring out like why mm-hmm. um, does your child not want to put on that jacket or those shoes? Does maybe the the fabric of the jacket um, is really uncomfortable, um, you know, tactily or to their skin, or maybe it's the weight or maybe it's too tight or too loose. Like there could be a sensory component and trying to figure out, which I know is very hard work, that detective work, but trying to find perhaps a solution that is more accommodating to your child's sensory system and helping them to be more comfortable. Um, and same thing for taking off a jacket. I do have a lot of clients that like to wear their jackets. And um, for some of the clients that can explain their experience to me, many times it's a very comforting sensation. A lot of times their hood is up to help to like kind of block out a sensory (laughs) other people as Tarn saying keep you away from me kind of thing when I don't want to talk to people um so there's like a really good reason to Mm -hmm. their experience as to why they're not taking off that jacket so really working through that and maybe providing some alternatives that would be safer um and also thinking like if, 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 if there's not a safety risk, why can't they wear their jacket in school? That's what I'm asking, yeah. you know, yeah. but there is like, but I think you're giving scenarios of when there's a safety mm-hmm. issue. Um, and that's when we should be doing our detective work and finding alternative solutions. That's a, a better match. Oh, exactly. School, and school uniform policy shouldn't dictate. I agree with that, Stacey. I think also a big issue is I feel like 
and maybe I shouldn't say this, when I worked in education, schools worry too much about both like uniform stuff and about like the elements. For example, it will be 60 degrees out and we'll be moving the kids outside and they'll be like, like, for example, I would take my coat off. We were moving the kids from the public school to the after school program. I take my coat off because I run on hot. And the other kids take their coats off and they, they're like, Torn, you know, they're following your lead. I'm like, because it's 60 degrees out. That's why. It's like, oh, they'll get frostbite. It's like, where I'm, I'm from New York City. There's like four weeks the entire year where it's so cold, where it's so cold, you'll actually get frostbite. It doesn't really get that cold up here. Where I went to school, it gets cold. Like where I went to college, up in like upstate New York by the Canadian border, there it gets cold. Like you, you will like freaking die if you have exposed skin. But down here, it really doesn't. So I feel like a lot of schools worry about things like, oh, they're going to be cold when it's not actually that cold out, especially if they're moving around. Mm -hmm. And they worry about things indoors, like, oh, we don't want them to wear a hoodie. And you ask them why you don't want, want to wear a hoodie. It's just either a uniform policy or because they're afraid they're hiding their headphones and the hoodie, which I never understood because like, and check the hoodie to make sure they're not hiding the headphones. It's as simple as that. Yeah, they might be. Where I went, where I went to high school, kids would do that, and these were autistic kids would do that. They would, you would hide. Back then, we didn't have Bluetooth either, so we had the wired headphones. So you had to loop them under your hoodie in your pocket, and then if you want to take it off, you take the hoodie off and you you scoop your hands right. behind your ears to take them off. Now it's a little easier with Bluetooth and all that stuff. But you check the hoodie, make sure they're not listening to stuff. And if they're not, it's fine. And then the other excuse they give us, then everyone will want to do it. So freaking what? Yeah. And if it's and if it's really a problem, like sometimes I get accommodations could be a problem to certain students. For example, I remember when fidget spinners got introduced. Mm -hmm. If you, I, I'm not sure if either of you happen to be in a classroom when fidget spinners got introduced. I was, and it sucked. Yeah. because it, it was convenient because it told you who was the ADD kids and who wasn't real quick because the kids who could play with them and still focus and the kids that couldn't, two-thirds yeah. of the kids couldn't. So you had to take them away from the kids that couldn't and explain to them that these kids need the fidget spinner to be able to focus. The rest mm -hmm. of you just want to play with it. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm hitting the fidget spinner while telling kids they can't have a fidget spinner and, and so all the counselors and all the teachers and all that stuff. So I get how accommodations sometimes but when it comes to things like hoodies and body temperature, mm -hmm. who cares if they want to regulate? Such so good schools can have very harsh because sometimes during the yeah. winter the heat's blasting. During the summer, it's ice. It's a it's a tundra in there. So I, I feel like schools do over. And I don't know how I got on this tangent, but I think because I have personal experience with schools, mm -hmm. I feel do overreact to that. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you brought that up about temperature because that's very important. A lot of some autistic kids do struggle. Some autistic adults even do struggle to feel when they're hot or cold, unless there's extremes. I feel like one part I want to add is there's a lot of adults who are struggling with this too, because if you're an adult currently, it means you were a child before like sensory stuff was invented. Obviously I'm being a bit facetious here, but this is very new. This is like mm -hmm. five years, I'd say that we started hearing about things like sensory interoception and vestibular and all that stuff. When I was a kid, we didn't have any of that stuff. So there was a lot of autistic people, a lot of friends of mine who are adults now who their interoceptive ability is just jacked up. They don't, my favorite one is I have multiple friends who tell me they forget to eat. Mm -hmm. They forget to eat. And I always tell them like, I never forget to eat. I'm always hungry. I'm, that's why I'm fat as hell. I wish I could forget to eat. I wish I could, it's like, well, sometimes I'll just be working. And I'll be working for eight hours straight, just, just being a savage and making money 
and be a productive member of society and I'll forget to eat. Meanwhile, like I'll be staring at my computer just like, like trying to like put words on paper to because my job is, is to write. And they'll be like, I get so focused, I forget like I'm hot. I'm like, I, that, that sounds awesome. <laughs> For me, honest, that sounds awesome. So what would you say to, I guess my question is, what would you say to parents who are worried that if their kids don't have the ability to regulate themselves as children, they'll become adults who can't do it either? What? Because I'm sure you get parents say, well, if they can't do it themselves, I won't always be here to remind them to drink water. I'm sure they say that when the kid's like three, mm-hmm. like way younger than any reasonably reasonable adult can be should be able to expect them to be able to do that for themselves. So what do you say to those parents? And I guess that's a question for both of you, because both of you probably deal with this. Well, and and Kelly, if you don't mind, I um, I want to go back to just to remind the listeners of what you said, because I really want to emphasize to the listeners, I really appreciate, Kelly, that you said their experience. I think that it's hard for parents to remember their child has a different experience than them because we associate and think our children have the same experience as we do. And so I love that you said that several times. So you guys rewind and listen, um, because it does help to remember, it helps for parents to be reminded and children, I mean, educators as well, but everyone's experience is different and their internal, your child's internal experience, just because they're your child doesn't mean it's exactly the same. And one of the ways I try to help parents make that connection is, you know, in the beginning of the summer when the pool is not quite warm enough for us grown folks, but the children jump in and it's freezing cold and they're perfectly fine their internal system registers different than ours, right? Right. So getting parents to understand that we do all register things different. So I just wanna say, I appreciate you saying their experience because we do need to be reminded that their experience is valid and we need to validate it and we need to try to understand it so that we can can help our kiddos. Um, But the question, the answer. (laughs) I I think Torin, the point you're making, I mean, I think there's a lot of really good points in the whole scenario. Um, and I think that, first of all, pointing out that there are adults that are struggling with interception, whether they're autistic or not. Um, I do think interceptive, like there's a lot of people out there struggling with being connected to their bodies for a wide variety of reasons, whether it's trauma or just our society, our, our, the messages we get from society is if you listen to your body, you're weak. Like, you know, it's like no pain, no gain, push through, push through the pain, get through. Like that's like messaging to just ignore what your body's telling you. So there, are, I think that it, this is definitely common in children and adults. And I love that you brought the adults into it. Um, and also the point of being worried with, you have a three-year-old that is not, you know, seeking out, uh, maybe a drink or not eating. Um, I think it circles back to like, there is so much we're learning more every day, but there's already so much that is finding we're finding to be very effective at enhancing someone's inner experience. Um, whether that's as they grow from three up to like, you know, adulthood, they're going to make so many gains in so many areas. And I, um, I think we should always presume competence, um, and that these kids will learn and they will grow and they will, um, definitely discover more about their inner experience, but also, um, Stacey, you mentioned earlier in the, um, episode that, um, there are a lot of 
like what my teenager clients call hacks that we can do to help someone. So whether that's, there's like smart water bottles out there that sink into your phone and they remind you to eat, like, there's so many different, um, hacks out there or just ways about smarting, um, these inner experiences if we need them. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of hope and a lot of um, promise as a child grows to an adult. Definitely. Have you ever read Donna Williams, one of her books? Yes. Did, um, the, I can't remember which one it was. I want to say it was nowhere. Is it nobody nowhere? I think that might've been the first one. And this was like 20 something years ago. I mean, I, we didn't have Amazon and all that when I started. So I will never forget the story she told about on the recess playground, everyone couldn't understand and she would get reprimanded or because she would wear this big coat, right? This big coat. And I remember she said, I thought if I wore the big coat, then I could just disappear, right? And that was a huge defining moment for me and shifting my, my narrative towards, not that I was going in the behavioral direction, but shifting my narrative towards understanding there's a lot that we need to understand, right? And unpack in terms of understanding why our kiddos do the things they do. Um, and so some of those old books have some really good insight as well as some of our great new blogs that we have out. So I encourage listeners to, um, you know, I know we don't have a lot of time to read all the time, but we now have audiobooks. So um, I, when I think about audiobooks, I'm thinking, gosh, I could have read like twice the amount of books that I read. Listen, I don't need to read books. I got my degree at the University of YouTube. I do my <laughs> own. I do my own research. The University of YouTube. I love that. I, I do. I do my own research. I, I like those that, that they have in, all those doctors and all those who they have an agenda. Like I, like I'm the smart one. All jokes, all jokes aside. I really, I really do enjoy this discussion because a lot of autistic kids do have issues. I feel a little left out because I sort of don't really have like the typical introspective interception uh, issues, but that's because I've, I'm like obsessive. So I'm always monitoring everything that's going on in my body because I know I have to. And sometimes I've told putting myself in like my friend's shoes, my friend forgets to eat or forgets to drink water, or all the stuff that you said, he's a full grown adult, he's, he's 29, he still forgets to do all that stuff. And I'm like, how do you forget that? Just just keep track of it like I do. Sometimes I drive myself crazy keeping track of every little thing in my life to, to keep things uh, functional, but I do, I, I, am, I, I am learning, I will say that. The one final thing I wanna say, cause we're up against time, we try to keep these episodes about 45 minutes or the length of a long trip to the bathroom. <laughs> And one thing I want to mention is if your kid is, and you alluded to this earlier, if your child's in like ABA therapy, any sort of behavioral therapy where you're trying to modify their behavior to match neurotypical norms, or if they're on psychoactive medication, I'm sure you've gotten parents be like, my kid doesn't know when he's thirsty, doesn't know like when he's hungry, but then you look and, oh, they're on 75 milligrams of Seroquel for the meltdowns and they're on 300 milligrams for Effexa, which is an adult dose for antidepressants because they have no friends and they're being bullied in school. And they're wondering why they're, they're in, all their sensory stuff is messed up. And the reason is because those medications mess with your frontal lobe. And we just did an episode on medication. And this is one of the side effects I didn't think of in the episode. So I'm glad you, you alluded to it. Th those meds can mess up your sense of everything, especially what's going on in your body. 
as well as ABA therapy where they're teaching you to ignore those signals. Just like, and, and I fall for it too. I'll have days where I don't sleep well and I'll tell myself, listen, I'm not tired. You're just being a bitch. Like, sack up, be a man, just power through the day. And I'll be like, yeah, I can do this. And then by 4 p.m., I have temporary Alzheimer's. Yeah. Yep. It's a perfect example. And I think all your points are super valid. There's so many things that can really um, disrupt our inner experience, whether it's lack of sleep, it's medications, it's, you know, certain um, approaches and therapies out there. So I think it's really important to have that discussion. So Stacy, do you have any final words? Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. We'll have to do this again. Um, cause I, I really think that, you know, I'm thinking here, sitting here and I know we're talking about kids and we're talking about adults. I would really, um, maybe even if we can, uh, I'm thinking like the transition of adolescence, right? Like how does that really impact? I mean, it's what Torin said it. What did you tell parents, Torin? Just hold on, just hold on tight when your kids are teenagers, <laughs> just hold on tight. Um, because everything's discombobulated for all teenagers. And then when you have that interoceptive and those inner feelings, especially when it comes to um, sexuality and all the Autistic puberty is a trip. It is a trip. Yeah. You think you think things are crazy now when your kid's like three. This <laughs> is give it 10 years and get back to me. So maybe we can um, think about getting like even a parent, right, who's kind of going through um, uh, navigating that with a teen um, to discuss it. Because I do think that it's something that the teen years are, yes, we do forget about adult. We're, we're trying to bring, you know, don't forget about adults. But I think parents are now kind of stuck in that muck of like, my little sweet was this sweet and the trampoline worked and now now they don't want to do their sensory activities and because they're teenagers right teenagers push back on everything because they're teenagers yeah, we, we gotta um, do we gotta do a whole nother episode interception just for teenagers because that's just such a broad topic yeah and like how to deal with when you're when you're 15 years old you see a hot girl and you're autistic and you're just like i need to have sex with that <laughs> like some i'm making a joke but some autistic people yes. uh we will struggle to sort of process those mm -hmm. emotions yeah. Yes. Because that, that testosterone slaps. I'll tell you, as a dude, I'll tell you like that, that it slaps and it hits you hard and fast. But um, yes. that will be a topic for another day. Um, Kelly, wh where can people find you? Uh, my website is the best place to find me at uh, kelly-mahler.com. And we have lots of free resources on there if you want to learn more about interoception. And as usual, all the links will be in the description. And Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You're going to help a lot of people with this, a lot of our audience, and I'm sure they're grateful and we are grateful. And Stacy, that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. Perfect. See ya.